Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Reed. Based in Glasgow, Mark is a UKRI Future Leaders Fellow, currently based in the Department of Pure and Applied Chemistry at the University of Strath- Strathclyde. You can follow him on Twitter at Reed underscore Indeed, and check out his website at doctor-mark-reed.com, and that's Mark with a C. You can also check out the Reed Indeed podcast and check out his channel on YouTube. Mark is the author of the LeanPub book, You Are Not a Fraud, A Scientist's Guide to the Imposter Phenomenon. In the book, Mark dives into the stories of hidden data behind the phenomenon so wrongly dubbed as syndrome. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's background and career, professional interest, his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience as an author and a self-published author to boot. So thank you very much, Mark, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Cheers, Len. It's, it's a joy from, for many reasons that I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into. <laughs> Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, which is a part of your book as well. So we're mel- melding two parts of the interview together. But um, yeah, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up and how you found your way into a life as a, an academic and a, a chemist. Sure. Well, um, you've picked up off mic and people will hear immediately that this accent is from Glasgow originally. So I, I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. And um as an academic, many a road has travelled out from there, but all roads have returned. So I live there now. I'm, I'm in my home at the moment. I live there with my wife and two very young children. So as I said off mic, um, <laughs> we're many hours apart and I have just escaped the chaos of the day um, from the beautiful family side of life. Growing up, I had always been curious, never knew I was going to be a scientist but knew some sort of research or investigative work might feature in what I do. Just didn't know what it was. When I went to university, there was no real plan for it. I chose a short list of four or five completely different subjects that I might major in. Uh, that long part of the story short, that became chemistry. Uh, chemistry has then been the, the front runner, the main theme my career going forward so i did my undergraduate degree and my phd in chemistry at strathclyde and then for this part of my career if you read it on a piece of paper it would look like a very tracked academic path so did my degree did my phd i went to do a, a postdoc research position in another another university and then after that that's when i started to take bigger strides and more leaps towards independent research. So to move out of other people's research teams and start to build my own. So I did that in a few different places and uh, both at home and abroad. And at this point, I've circled back, as you've said in your kind introduction to Strathclyde again, I've been like a glorified yo-yo in and out of my home institution my entire career. So that's a very short version of how I got into the academic side of work it is in the process that other stuff we'll probably talk about the itch that I've scratched only later in my career is trying a lot of the other non-traditional stuff a lot of the non-academic stuff that I knew that I really wanted to do but spent a large part of my early career focusing on the scripted path the right way to do things moving from one part of the career ladder to the next in academia and those other things are, you know, quite obviously things like writing a book, but more broadly than that, thinking about ways of working outside the academic bubble. 
um, looking at what it is to be a scientist in industry rather than academia, and more personally to me, looking at what it means to be an entrepreneur rather than or as well as an academic. These were things that once scared me to my core, and it's only in this part of my career in the fa- last few years or so that I've I've reached out. But in doing so, then that's triggered a lot of these thoughts that I started to secretly write about a few years ago. So I remain an academic, but it's only in these past few years that I've allowed myself to add more strings to the bow, so to speak. Um, one thing you mentioned there that I wanted to sort of dive into a little bit is uh, you know, yeah. sort of scripted kind of career for an academic you talked about. Um, uh, yeah. there, 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 there is, there, there's, there's, there are scripts, um, uh, but not everyone knows them. Uh, and in particular, if you come from a family background where no one's been to university before, um, you could be very unaware of what that script is. Um, and, uh, it, and, and, you know, um, it can be, a very peculiar form of alienation to not to be around people who know it. You know they know it, but you don't know it. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I gather I, you're very uh, straightforward about this in your book. I, be, I believe uh, one of your grandfathers sort of went to university later in life, but you were the first person in your sort of you know immediate family um, to go to university and you and right after sort of school and you made it all the way to to PhD and stuff like that. Do you recall how you learned the script? Yes, I. Uh... Great question, and the you know the profound nature of being the first generation is something that uh, only struck me later when I was reflecting on all of this more deeply. Um, part of the seed for it was the inspiration for my grandfather. He was uh, a card carrying labourer all of his days. The um, the stereotypical archetypal jack of all trades. Even he did every job under the sun. Um, each more labour intensive than the last, you know, little pockets of careers throughout his his life growing up and as a, a family person. And it was, as you say, it was only I think maybe in his late forties, if I remember correctly, that he then had the opportunity to go back and study for a formal degree. So it was alien to him. And as you say, alien to me in a different respect. I had that seedling from two generations up. But no one else had gone straight out of school into university. So as much as anything else, I think I've learned to understand this through the eyes of folks like Malcolm Gladwell, where learning that script, I think, is about as much about your place and time as actually formally learning it from others. You know, I'm part of a generation where there's perhaps more of an expectation or more of a a sense that the place and time is right, that we are part of, you know, I'm uh, roughly speaking, I'm in my mid-30s, so part of a generation where it's quite typical to have parents and grandparents who didn't have further or higher education and have worked hard to provide for a point where our generation have more of that privilege to choose. And that's where I found myself, and that became part of the culture, more of the conversations, more of what you learned at the end of high school. That, you know, for our generation, it's it's um, perhaps in some cases expected that you can and perhaps should go to university. It's not for everyone. There are many people who uh, go down a different path and go into a trade for their career. 
I think the other perhaps um, geographical piece of important information here is that in Scotland, university education is more or less free. Which when I talk to anyone from across the pond, that's the alien point of view. I would never have gone to university if I had, had I not had the privilege of falling out into the world in Scotland. You know, things could have been very, very different. I happened to grow up in a place where the government openly and freely supports education in that manner. Had I even been one country further south in England, paying you know, four figures per year, year out of my own pocket or my parents' pocket for my degree, I probably wouldn't have one degree, let alone several. So that's the bit that makes me perhaps most grateful um, is the potluck of landing in a place where I could go to university and for the barrier to do so to be very, very low. And is it still relatively free in Scotland? Yeah. Okay. So the, you know, if I don't speak for everyone, but a more common, like if anyone, if you're thinking about the opposite case where it's very common, um, let's say in the States to go into large amounts of debt to go to university, then the, the parallel cases is much smaller, probably several orders of magnitude smaller in Scotland where the debt might be uh, to take out a small student loan for living costs, for example. That's certainly what I did. And so now that I'm in a, a stable career, I pay back part of that loan out of my salary. So that's a very common case, but it's, as I said, it's not at the scary levels that you hear uh, more broadly speaking for um, North American education. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I have a kind of personal experience of encountering that sort of right. other side of the pond thing. Yeah. Where I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but I moved to I moved to London in 1999 and um, I was working right. in a place right off the Strand, right near the right. It was an office and it was a private company, but it was nestled in the London School of Economics kind of campus um uh-huh. and um there were protests happening students marching and i remember asking my colleagues you know what are they protesting about and they said tuition they're going to be forced to pay tuition and i was like they're not paying it already um and i talked to a colleague of mine who was like i said do, do you have student loans and he said he got he got a very serious look on his face and he said yes five thousand pounds and mm-hmm. Canada is not nearly the troubling situation and terrible situation, I would venture to say, that you have in the States. But, you know, the idea that, like, one would protest having to pay tuition and that one would be devastated at having 5,000 pounds of debt after getting an undergraduate education was alien to this Canadian. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, but of course it got me thinking, you know, and of course, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of university education. I personally wish it would think it should be free. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, free. I mean, you know, it, it should be free for the the, the student, um, uh, and there should be sort of. Australia has a great system where you basically kind of pay what you can uh, as you go throughout through, throughout your your life and your career and things yes. like that. Uh, but um, it can be very daunting, and particularly um, uh, if you go on. So, do you do you remember when you um, decided that you wanted to go on to graduate school? Were you, were you encouraged by professors or, or anything like that? Yeah, quite deeply. And from so, uh, the undergraduate degree is a five-year degree in Scotland. So you have, uh, at least in the, the STEM subjects, so chemistry for me, you do 
three years undergraduate, then if you're doing a master's, your fourth of the five years will be on an industrial placement. So you'll interview to work with a chemistry company, go away and be an employee for a year and then come back and do your final master's project year. So in, in that five-year course, it was from the second of those five that I had my first taste of a research laboratory. So as a chemist, when you go through labs, when you're first getting exposed to it from a teaching side, it's very recipe-based. You will follow things that are going to work. You'll do so in a step-by-step -step guide. It's far rarer that you would get the exposure to the real world of research where most of what you do fails and everything is more exotic and unknown than what it is at the teaching level. But um, it's quite common again here where students will look for internships, paid summer placements during their degree. And that's exactly what I did in my second year. So that took me into uh, a particular type of chemistry lab where most of what you make, if it touches the air, it will explode. Or if you send it shooting out a syringe like a water gun, you'll see an arc of fire. These things are very exotic and um, don't play well with moisture or oxygen. So that that was a very sharp, a very intense exposure to the cool stuff to do with chemistry. I had another taste of that the year later in a, a completely different area of chemistry with someone that had a different sort of leadership style. So I'd started to see dimensions, not only of research, but of the people within research. When I went away on that fourth of five years that was in a company, there was an unexpected crossroads where there was an offer to go back and work for that company. So I didn't actually know if I was going to, although the seed had been planted early, when this offer was put on the table, the question came up, quite early industry or academia. We spoke earlier about how it always seemed to be part of that academic script for me, but that was a, a wrestling point. And it was one of those earlier uh, professors who had given me the summer opportunity who encouraged me to stay, or at least to experiment more with the academic world through the form of a PhD. And that's what really tipped me over the edge. When I then stayed for a PhD, that's when I got let loose a little bit more to, yes, I was working in someone else's lab on their research themes, but you're, as a PhD student, you're, you're let loose, right? You've, you've got more scope to be creative, to make the research work on your own terms and explore the unknown, not for several weeks over the summer, but for several years. Um, and I took the bull by the horns at that point. Uh, I really loved most of what I was doing. I'm the sort of person who works well with deadlines in quite an intense environment, so I felt very much at home doing that sort of thing. Um, certainly heard from others in near and far that you know there's different types of academic environment. Again, I'm very careful to speak on particular terms rather than over-generalizing things. Um, my case is not every case. But I would say that after that crossroads, will I actually just go to industry now and forget academia? Once I had passed that and stayed with academia a bit longer, it was the creativity, the exploration at the PhD level 
that then made me stay the course for much longer than that. Um, and one one thing I actually was looking forward to asking you about is what what was your day to day life like as a sort of PhD in chemistry, uh, PhD student in chemistry? And I just say this because you know I have a background, I have a doctorate in English literature, um, yeah. and uh, I remember I had lots of lots of sort of friends and or as it were colleagues who were in chemistry and physics and uh-huh. engineering and stuff like that. And their day-to-day life was very different from mine. Um, <laughs> I would say. This I mean, is, that's right. Okay. This, this is very interesting. I'm, I'm very tempted to actually answer your question with the same question back. So maybe we could go sure. toe to toe here a little bit and, and, and compare and contrast. So, our, again, because this is particular and not overgeneralizing, we were in, um, Quite an intense lab. Everyone liked to put in their hours. So, you know, we started easily um, eight o'clock onwards. Many people would work quite long hours. The context of that is that in the organic chemistry environment, I found myself working in as a very labor intensive part of the chemical sciences. You're, you're mixing the pills and the potions using lots of different types of glassware having to put in preparative work to design experiments first and then repeating those um, several times over. So, you know, three different experiments repeated three times, that's so nine experiments already. And that just grows and grows and grows. And that could be for one project then another. So the the amount of work that you do, number of different reactions you do gets larger and larger. And then it becomes sort of par for the course that long working hours featured in that. Um, not necessarily because a finger was pointed to do so, but that's just the way that everyone fed off of each other, at least while I was doing my PhD. So intense, quite long hours, quite often. And and I'm just one one very specific question I have about that is like yeah. so the experiments you were doing so you you you're doing a PhD so you have a you have a sort of thesis that you're going to have to write and publish right in the yeah, end absolutely and yeah. in, in the science is often sort of you know, papers along the way. So yes. these experiments you're describing, were those like your experiments for your thesis that you were working yes. on? They were, okay. Yes. Okay. For the, the majority of the time, you might have, you know, interesting tangents where you'll collaborate with other members of the team and have joint projects to deliver something that's a little bit bigger. Yeah, but in a nutshell, most of my time was designing experiments for my project. So I worked in an area of chemistry where you were trying to, take a a drug type molecule and treat it as if it was a whale in the ocean to be tagged by a biologist. So if someone's tracking schools of sharks or pods of whales, you'll put a tag onto them and follow them by GPS or some such technology, find out where they go, what becomes of them. And the microscopic scale, you can do the same thing with chemicals. You can swap out some of the atoms inside the molecule and exchange them for radioactive variants of the same atom. And then you can track the energy and the particles that's emitted from the radioactive version of the drug. So like tagging a whale, you can tag a molecule and instead of following them across the ocean, you can follow them around the body and find out what becomes of them. So most of my working day was trying to figure out ways of doing that and essentially designing the catalyst, which was the middleman, the thing that would would make the radioactive thing, the label, and the drug molecule come together seamlessly to leave the tag on the drug molecule. 
So that's my story. My colleagues would have their own story of different projects. Each of us essentially had to create a book, the thesis at the end of that, describing what the state of the art in that field was and how our experiments, our research had contributed and tried to push the state of the art forward. So how does that compare to your very different world doing so, a PhD? Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, that it's... um. Uh... Yeah, the, my my world was very different. Um, uh, the uh, I did my doctorate at the University of Oxford, um, and uh, you know, that's sort of like I'm just saying that sort of a lot of most of our listeners probably North American, so they're familiar. Okay. Insofar as they're aware of sort of PhDs and stuff like that, which they all are, um, you know, a PhD is kind of like four to six years. You do two years of classes, you do yes. comp comprehensive exams, and then you sort of focus on your thesis, and that might take four years or something like that. Um, okay. In Oxford, it's very different, and you and you'll be teaching along the way. And, and you'll have a committee and stuff like that. Yes. And at Oxford, it's very different. Uh, my joke there is that basically they like, they say hello and then they roll you out like a kite and tie it to a rock and come back in three years. And they're like, so have you done anything? Um, and this is, this is in the humanities. Um, and uh, so the, the only kind of like, I had a, I had a course I had to like a sort of like just attend it kind of orientation yeah. course I had to take in the first year. And the first year was a probationary research scholar you're called, or at least you used to be. Okay. So basically you had to submit what I thought at the end of the first year, you had to submit sort of like an outline of your thesis and a 10,000 word essay, which I did yeah. in advance of applying. Cause I thought that's what you needed to, do to get in. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, uh, so my, my, I mean, that, that that's all the way of saying my, my days were like a lot of this, you know, from yeah. like, from from noon to midnight, um, uh, wherever wherever I happened to be, um, uh, there was no. And I remember like my my colleagues who were in the sciences who would be like talking about their labs and their like supervisor, and they they'd be like you know uh -huh. you know they'd be they'd be at the lab at eight in the morning until until you know whenever they left at night, and it was sort of like a in 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 the in the it was like a job and then in the non pejorative yeah. sense when they loved and when they would like had a long-term sort of like things that they were up to and things like that. Uh, but yeah. you know, yeah, mine was very much more the bohemian kind of romantic, like, you know, oh, I just had a brilliant this. thought, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go write something down. But it was all very, it was all very, I, I guess in a sense, like, all very probably the biggest distinction I would say between that kind of humanities work and sciences work, and again in the particular context I was in, is very alone as opposed to together mm. with other people. Um, uh, right. Maybe, okay. With with respect to the work part of things, right? Yeah. 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 Which I absolutely love. Like like completely, just open to you. Like the most productive month I had was when I went and lived in a sort of garret in Paris in a like low rent apartment owned by some nuns um so i could just kind of write for a month um uh and you know so very different from from you know having other there was no basically there was nobody watching what i was yeah doing. yeah it was all completely sort of self so unless i asked for it or what or what have you um so yeah my days were very very different you, you, you sound like something out of a you know documentary for a turn of the century french painter because <laughs> you say it's very much bohemian yeah. cigar in hand <laughs> yeah i mean there was there was lots there was lots of other stuff going on but it was well with cigarettes in my case but um uh, <laughs> but uh you know so i guess that just goes more towards the old 19th century French stereotype, but, um, yes. but yeah, no, no, it's, but it, but it is interesting because when we talk about PhDs, you know, those of us who've, who've done them, um, are, you know, it's, it's a very different experience depending on what subject you're in, 
where you are, what country you're in, what your goals are, which is something we can mm -hmm. maybe talk about later or we, yeah. we, we might touch on because not everybody who does a PhD is necessarily interested uh, in um, pursuing academia as a career. And uh, at the same time, a lot of people who get PhDs, that's exactly what they're interested in. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, they don't move on into academic careers or, you know, and this is something you write about sort of very passionately at the beginning of your book. Sometimes you can end up in um, a situation where you've got no permanent job. You've got these one year LTAs, limited term agreements, I think they're called that, that we have in yes. Canada. And uh, this is a big problem in actually contemporary university life where, I mean, and this is sort of a, a I'm outside of it, but like, you know, a sort of passion yeah. of mine as well is what I call admin capture, basically. And my apologies <laughs> to any university administrators listening, but like, you know, the statistics are there, right? Like there's been an explosion in the administrative layer of universities, particularly I think in North America and a winnowing out of actually tenured professors there. Um, uh, so did you, yeah. so you, you, you mentioned that you mentioned that you, um, you had this opportunity to sort of basically go into industry or to stay in academia. Um, and you decided to sort of stay in academia. Uh, and, um, I was wondering if you could then talk about just, just before we go on to talk about your book, cause we're, I'm sort of deliberately leaving that to, to make a big splash at a certain point. Uh, but, um, so you got, you got this really great, um, fellowship, um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit of the, the proselytize for your, for your fellowship, the sort of funders and things like that. Tell us, tell us what it is and, uh, and what you do. Well, there's perhaps, um, uh, a really nice opportunity to build even a, a rickety bridge between what I'm doing now and I dare say the larger part of your lean pub audience um, who are in the software space. So I, you know, we've spoken a lot about my career as a chemist. Two things. Firstly, this fellowship that I'm on now, when I got it, my first feeling was not of happiness or excitement or celebration it was relief when i opened the email i read the result in my mind and the first thought that crossed my path was i don't need to look for another job for a while it's the first time i'd had a fellowship that it's essentially um you know it's like five or seven years but it slowly bleeds into um what you would call in north america a more tenure like position so it's it's tenure track with a smooth transition into a tenure position for the longer term but you know the, one step at a time my first thought was relief because before that it had been smaller fellowships postdoctoral positions one two-year contracts all of that bite-sized stuff with unknowns along the way you know and this the stress builds that i got married during one of those posts thinking well when can we buy a house? Can can we ever settle down and do those sorts of things? You know, that's a many more plates are spinning when you're in those short term contracts. So getting the post, the fellowship now, it was all about relief. The bridge to the lean pub world, if I can dare put it that way, is that up until that point, I'd been slowly transitioning out of being a pure chemist to one who can write a little bit of code. Nowhere near the level of many of your authors, but it was during my postdoc that I wrote Hello World in Python for the first time. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. It didn't just 
opened my eyes to a world that I knew was there and didn't dare look at before. But had I never done that, some of the ideas that have since become part of the fellowship you mentioned would never exist. I needed the knowledge of not an expert, but a competent programmer and one who could see how to automate certain tasks or do certain types of chemical analysis in a new way. That that would never have existed had I not spent several years playing around with Python before that. And in the position before the fellowship you mentioned, I got a Raspberry Pi kit from my wife for my birthday one year. I had just started my first academic lab. I did not have two pennies to rub together to buy all of the fancy equipment that I had learned to use during my PhD and postdoc from better funded labs. But I happened to have this you know, $50 camera module. And by that point, I knew how to write a few lines of code. I put about 10 lines of code together using the Raspberry Pi to point the camera at a chemical reaction and record what happens. And the Python magic was then to strip out all of the numerical information from the video footage. And that, even that, if you had to see my code or if any of your LeanPub software authors had seen my code, they would probably do a small spew in their mouth. It was horribly written code. It wasn't modular in any way, but it did stuff. It did the job and it drove the concept which then later became my fellowship. So everything that my team are doing now is all very much in the realms of chemistry, but it's chemistry facilitated by certain types of computer vision magic. So we point cameras at chemical reactions and write different algorithms to understand what is happening in real time based on what is captured in the video recording. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. I mean, I think I, I had someone on the podcast not too long ago named philip compo who talked about that he's um at the university of the united states and works on, on on similar kinds of things and it's super interesting like when you talk about extracting the kind of data from the video um yeah. and and the, the 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 just magic that scientists like you can do now with that data um uh about like sort of things at the very microscopic level uh but it, especially i think what he was talking about was like he was in biology uh, biological computation or something like that. And they're right. applying, applying machine learning to that kind of data means yeah. that you can actually like take a picture of a cell and in a sense, kind of guess what's going on inside based on visual imagery, because you, because Absolutely. you've run millions of images against data from what's actually going on inside actual cells and experiments. But I imagine like something like that in chemistry as well. It's just, just incredible and we could probably talk about that that forever but it's so it's I, one thing I, I really loved about the story that you just told is that i was recalling i mean you know i remember like in grad school like you know if i got if i you know in student residence if i had a like an apartment for a year i was like wow a whole year yeah of certainty you know yeah <laughs> or where i remember yeah. getting, getting, getting scholarships and funding and it's like three whole years i know <laughs> wow yeah. You know, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, I've never had that experience myself, but particularly that experience of getting the sort of like, okay, I'm on, I'm on the tenure track now. I know where I'm going to be. I can build a life for myself and with my family, and I can tell them where I'm going to be probably in five years. I mean, these are mm -hmm. huge developments, and it it is it is it is quite interesting how you know, um, 
you know, again, you know, one can sort of think of the sort of like, you know, bohemian smoking kind of, you know, grad student and stuff like that. But like there is incredible amount of intensity to that life, an incredible amount of year to year uncertainty. Um, and, you know, you can be in your you can be in your 30 in your early 30s and like have no idea, you know, what's going to what's going to happen to you um, in, in your life. Quite easily. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and on the flip side, you know, you would have sorry to interrupt you. And I'm yeah, just yeah. thinking that at the same time, you know, that that sort of life is, uh, um, you know, you, ha- you have to be built in a certain way to enjoy that or, or, or to thrive on that uncertainty. And, uh, you know, you imagine or hear similar stories even from, you know, I've spoke a lot about the academic world, but the entrepreneurial space as well, you know, to, uh, you know, I think there's quite a common misconception that there's, you know, an extravagance or, uh, you know, exotic life that comes with being an entrepreneur. But I've actually found that there's a lot more parallels between these apparently separate bubbles than meets the eye. You know, there's a lot of short-term uncertainty. Many times where you're looking for grant funding, you would just call it different types of rounds, right? If you were going to investors, they just call it different things, but there's a lot of the same short-term uncertainty, high-stress constant searching for money it, it, it's different games that are being played but a lot of the rules overlap i think oh i yeah i i completely agree in that there's sort of ramen noodle kind of life that you that you might be living when when you're when your friends your own age aren't um uh, that that can be a, an element of it as well uh but yes no those the, the parallels between um you know that's a, that's a, like a, between grad student life and kind of entrepreneurial life um are, are as you say like that's that's a very they're very well made point and in particular one that like i i haven't actually like myself quite made that connection that you just made so well before between like getting a scholarship and getting funding or, and, and getting mm-hmm. and getting investment um yeah. uh because i mean i think often when 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 sort of when you sort of put on the hat of imagining a grad student life it's sort of a life of supplication right you know you're kind of applying for yeah. things and hoping committees will give you a place or give you some money welcome to entrepreneurship you know uh you know uh, we don't Absolutely. we don't have we don't yeah. have shark tank tv shows for grad school but if we did <laughs> yes. people would be on those shows pitching their research projects and stuff like that and maybe we should i don't know um uh but yeah the parallels the parallels including risk including the hope for the big payoff, uh, including doing what you love, including sort of dropping everything to sort of, you know, just go off in a new direction and scaring your family, um, things yes. like that. So those, yeah, yeah. those are your things. Uh, but uh, anyway, just in, in the interest of sort of, um, actually, um, the last thing I guess maybe we'll talk about with respect to sort of career path stuff before moving on to talk right. about your book, um, is you did um, Seth Godin's Alt-MBA. Uh, and you yeah. brought up entrepreneurship and and sort of key. in addition to your academic and co- sort of you know chemistry world, you've got this entrepreneurial uh, world that you're, you're or dimension that you're keeping uh, alive in your life and sort of moving down that path as well. Uh, so I was wondering if you could actually just talk a little bit about that. What uh, who's Seth Godin for those who don't know, and what what's the Alt MBA? Seth Godin, to say very little, have his biography as the marketing goat. Yes, um, at this point. Uh, uh, more than multi-time best-selling author, uh, marketer, early adopter and entrepreneur in the internet space. And, you know, the core of what he has done for many years, outside of his 
larger scale entrepreneurial projects is to be a writer and an educator with a focus on marketing. In later years, through the advent of his own uh, podcast, he has become increasingly impassioned about alternative forms of education. And through that passion came the old MBA. And more than that, through a talk that he gave called What is School For? Where it was questioning why does school look much the same now as it did in the Victorian era? Why are we as uh, obsessed with the gatekeeping mechanism of exams now as we were back then when we were looking for people to fill factories? So the Alt-MBA was a programme to find other ways of educating yourself that didn't involve exams, didn't involve you learning things by rote, but involved you showing up all the time, working to deliver more projects in a short time than you ever thought was possible, to give more feedback to people than you would ever care to do before and realise that that's where most of your learning gets done. So that whole process was a month long and I delivered more in that month than I had in several years of academic work before that. Tying the stories together, I was able to fund, I, I knew because I was exploring entrepreneurship, I knew of Seth, I'd read his books and listened to the podcast and heard the old MBA adverts such that when I was trying to fund my academic fellowship, one of the things I put in my line items of the funding was for the old MBA. And I wanted to do that as part of my personal training. Fast forward a few years, the stuff that I learned in that short burst of time is now coming full circle such that I'm creating those all MBA intense project delivery type exercises for my own research team to help them see that there are other ways to get stuff done and to realize that done is far better than perfect. My eyes were opened in the all MBA and it's, it's just... You know, it's, it's a joy now to be able to try to do that same sort of stuff for other people. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. That's interesting. I'm uh, preparing for this interview. I listened to the um, first couple dozen or so of your um, uh, podcast episodes uh, from ah, right, years okay. ago. Uh, which are very charming, um, uh, you know, there's the, you know, so you, you say like, you know, I'm going to do one every day and then there's a 140 day gap because you have a second, <laughs> second child and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea. Um, the, the, the game changes with two a, kids. So one, one, I didn't realize how easy one kid was. <laughs> yeah, I know there's a multiplicative factor, you know, uh, they're a team you said, uh, and, um, but anyway, but you, you talk about, you talk there about uh, how actually, yeah, sort of like sort of funding this, this alt MBA was actually part of your, your, um, uh, academic kind of package, uh, which I found super interesting, um, uh, that, that, that you could actually pull that off. Um, so congratulations to you for <laughs> doing that. Cause that, that, that those kinds of things can be hard to convince, but, um, but then that's very interesting that you would take something from, uh, from the kind of like, you know, entrepreneurial world and bring it into the academic world to, to sort of improve productivity and kind of the excitement and just give people a different model for what they're doing. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, but it does it does then link to you know other stuff you're wanting to talk about. Like yeah, I back when I did the MBA, I, I didn't have any book to speak of. I was the master procrastinator for many years, and it was for lack of more poetic phrasing, the rocket up my ass to get stuff finished. Um, 
so you know that was one line item and the whole list of things that I wanted the MBA to be a catalyst for. Um, and speaking of your book, um, so uh, just just moving on to the next part of the interview where you talk about the the author the author's book and their work and things like that. So uh, one thing one thing that we've sort of left out of this whole conversation about all the things that you've done and and your path through life is that a lot of this time you felt like you were an imposter, um, and to, to to some extent, um, and and you write yeah. about this very yeah. very movingly uh, in your in in your book. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, the imposter phenomenon, uh, your experience of it and why it's not a syndrome. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, thanks in large part to you. A lot of what we've discussed already, um, helps create the thread that ties it all together. So I'll come back to explaining what it actually is, but summarizing things we've said already, looking at an academic path whilst being essentially the first in family to go from that school environment into a higher education environment having even within academia many short-term contracts where there are necessities to move from working with one group of people in one institution to a completely unknown group of people in another lab in another institution moving from job to job to job all of those things together created in me what i didn't know there was a name for during my postdoc when i moved from my phd lab to my postdoc lab that was the first such big career move for me in terms of working essentially in one company then another one uni then another one group of people who, as we've shared with our own PhD experiences, you, whether you're working alone or as a team, there'll be a group of people you know for several years. That move for me to another team was the first time I'd, I'd known no one. But what I wasn't prepared for was at that time, it's the first that I'd found myself Google-stalking people and finding out what did their Google Scholar profile look like and how many papers did they have and oh what was what you know what's the metrics of the journals that they were publishing in essentially how, how much more do they know than I do uh, when are these people going to find me out uh, when is the boss going to realize they hired the wrong postdoc and you know rip up my contract and give it to the next person in line I had no idea what that was that that all came under this banner of what most people would call the imposter syndrome it was only during that two-year postdoc period that i again through exploring entrepreneurship sort of on the side at the time and listening to seth godin and tim ferris and others in that space on podcasts that you know in the entrepreneurial world i think one distinction is they're a lot better at exploring and openly talking about mind management techniques more so than in academia so at that time when i was struggling with these comparisons i was making i had happened to come across and listen to some stuff from entrepreneurs about journaling and meditation so I knew this stuff was going on and I knew that it was starting to impact how much time I could spend in a day thinking about the research I actually wanted to do. I was spending all this time worrying about what I was thinking of myself relative to others. 
not a lot of time thinking about the cool science I was there to do. So I went home every day and cracked open a Word file and just chipped away on the keys for two years in secret because I'd just been learning about other people who were journaling daily and getting a lot from it. So that was my way of getting it all out of my head onto paper. And in that first year, I still didn't really know what the name for it was. The first year was really just me pouring all of this out. As year one of the postdoc turned into year two, more of that secret writing became reflections on I found this article today or I listened to this podcast, I found this book and this little nugget, this tool sort of helped me see this thing I was struggling with in a different way. Eventually I came across terms like imposter syndrome and imposter phenomenon to realise that the things I was experiencing were not just known but common and, and not just common but very well reported among many very well-known people. And that many decades before I had ever felt like this, that had been coined not as the imposter syndrome, but the imposter phenomenon. And that was the thing that confused me. And that that's, you know, I, I write about that, that I was confused to see the different term. And now eventually coming to your the, the crux of your question about why it was important to hang on to that distinction. Why was it in why was it ever coined imposter phenomenon? And how has it come to be that we all call it this more ominous imposter syndrome now? And it was, in short terms, a happy accident. You know, There was an article published in the early 80s, a few years after the imposter phenomenon had been coined by the original researchers that wrote phenomenon and syndrome in the same article. I... I think quite innocently, syndrome is much easier to say than phenomenon. Syndrome carries more weight, uh, more dark connotations, will certainly sell more books, and is easier to get attention with. Thinking in analytical terms, much like many members of your audience will, it was when I started to look at those trends that I could see more clearly that there is nowadays no contest between the terms. Yes, in, in academia, you know, psychologists are more aware and will use phenomenon and syndrome by the same cord. But look at Google Trends, uh, web scrape some data from Twitter and other places, and you'll see that syndrome is the runaway winner. And I think for many of those innocent reasons seeded back in the early 80s. Why it matters, though, is that one of the connotations coming out from using the word syndrome is to think that it's something pathological. To think that, that that experience means there's something wrong with you. That it is, at this point in time, a, an ethereal collection of symptoms that might one day be diagnosed as a disease. But that's the point. It is no such thing. That feeling of being an imposter is rooted in many elements that are just common parts of the human experience. And using the word syndrome just wraps it up in the wrong sort of Christmas paper, if you like, it gives it this sense of being something that it isn't. It adds more weight to it when it shouldn't. And that's why when you hear many people talking about how to quote unquote overcome it, which is another thing I don't like, we can come to that later if you want. But they will quite rightly say things like the large numbers of percentage of people who feel that way. 
And it's sort of left at that subtle point where, yes, a lot of people feel it, but we should go further and say a lot of people feel it because it's not a syndrome. It's a very, very normal part of you trying to make the next move in your life, next move in your career, move from the comfortable to the more challenging unknown. I would tie all of that in a bow by saying that if you don't feel like an imposter during these moves in your career, you're probably doing it wrong. Because feeling like an imposter is the natural position to have. You're not the expert and you're aware of it. That makes sense. Yeah, it it does. Um, thanks very much for that. That's um that there's there's so much. I mean, I could I could respond to that with um uh myself. Uh, one one thing um I wanted to sort of uh drill down into though is um that I that I sort of like I probably if I'd been asked a question I would have given the right answer, but I didn't really understand until um I I sort of read your read your book was and then listened to like your podcast and stuff like that was that. Imposter syndrome is is in addition to sort of like feeling like an feeling like maybe you don't merit the position you have. Yes, uh, there is a preoccup and again, like I'm just, I'm actually sort of asking this to sort of confirm what I think I think I understood from from this, but yeah. a, a preoccupation. It, so a lot of basically all of us have probably had the experience of feeling like you know we're in a new job or in a new situation. Maybe you don't fit in. Maybe we're not as good as the people around us yet or or stuff like that but a preoccupation with the idea that you're going to be found out and that you're going to lose the position that you have is that is that correct is that is that that hits the nail on the head right the the undercurrent of that the the qualifier is that it's not just that you think you're going to be found out not just that you either you either think you're not good enough or that you don't know enough if you stop there you come to one of the most common mistakes of interpreting what this experience is, and that is to think that it's all about low Mm self-esteem. And that's not the case. The thing that all of those thoughts are partnered with is that it happens in high achievers, people who have ambition or are striving for something, and to have and can print on a piece of paper hard evidence of their graft, their, their accolades, their successes, things that have gone before which leads to other things like um, not stopping to accept praise, feeling like an imposter, even though the evidence says otherwise. It's, if you like, a contradiction in terms and one that specifically affects most people who want to progress and to try new things and to get to the next stage of their career or to try a new career. So it's not, it's not as simple as having low self-esteem that's something altogether different. Yeah, no, there is overlap, but yeah, it's no, very distinct at the same time. Yeah, thanks very much for bringing that up because again, yeah, no, I think I think a lot of people, as I I didn't say it myself, you did so well, but like you know that one of the mistakes people make is a they think that it's just about it's just about feeling like you're not good enough or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's actually the fear of being found out. Um, uh, but also, as you say, and it's not, it's not a matter of low self-esteem. Uh, in 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 fact, built into it is the idea that like you you're kind of like want to be better than you are um uh which is a high achievers kind of necessary condition right you're sort of looking looking absolutely to, to climb the next hill uh constantly self-questioning and things like that and i and and i gather and this is another thing i learned from 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 you is that um in addition to that 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 sort of fear of being found out um that is a common feature of this phenomenon or experience the other thing is comparisons 
um, the, the, the yeah. comparing yourself to other people sort of, as you said, sort of like, you know, looking them up on Google scholar and things like that. And sort of thinking like, I, I, as I gather, like sort of be unable to help yourself from thinking about that other person's experience and comparing yourself to them. And I, I'm just sort of curious is, is part of that thinking about what they're thinking about you or is it all you thinking about them and comparing yourself to them? That is, um, that is a, a fascinating question. I've never heard a comparison quite pitched like that before. But I guess, you know, everything that we've spoken about up until now is one side of that same coin where all of the anxiety around the imposter experience is you worrying about what others think of you, the boss that might find you out, the person who might realise that you don't know enough or don't know as much as them, that's you worrying about what they think of you. So what you're asking about now, and I hadn't thought about it in this way until you asked the question in that way, is that it's the flip side of the same coin. All that other stuff is them, you worrying about what they think of you, but the comparisons is all of the misconstrued ways that you think of them. You compare yourself to the person who is you know, more successful in some dimension that you think or some metric that you think is um, exalted or on the pedestal, you know, be that journal metrics or whatever. It doesn't need to be just the academic metrics. It's, you know, whatever metric it is that others are held to in the same job as you, right? Or whatever comes up at an annual development review or CPD or something along those lines, you know, you'll find those nuggets where you can compare you, A, to them be the thing that gets missed out is the context how did they get to where they are what is their story to get to now versus your story the other way i have heard this is like well is there anything good about this whole so-called imposter syndrome and counterintuitively comparison can be a good thing if you're comparing to someone who is tantalizingly close to where you are and it's you can see the tangible steps to get to where they are. That can provide uh, upward lift, upward momentum, uh, motivation for you to get there. But a lot of these comparisons that take the darker turn and become these imposter type thoughts are, you just throw out the window all of that backstory. You never consider all the crap that that person might have waded through to get to where they are or how their starting point might be different to yours. It's just in the moment, the instantaneous comparison without context that leads to the dark side of this, which is why you can speak about these things in the same breath as social media and the way that social media has provided a mechanism to exaggerate all of that poor type of comparison. You see the highlight reel, you see someone in the moment showing the best of themselves. You don't see the backstory. All you get is a continuous stream of opportunity to instantly compare yourself now to what you perceive of them on that little square on social media. Yeah, it's interesting. I, that reminds me of something you talk about. Um, there's a there's a talk that I'll I'll link to in the transcript when we eventually get it out for for this episode. Um, but there's a talk you gave on YouTube, I don't think too long ago, where you talk about sort of three ways of sort of dealing with the imposter phenomenon. And one of them is yes. the yeah. last one is compare carefully which is I think what you're, what you're talking about right now, right? Which is like, you know, don't compare yourself to, um, I don't know, Ryan Reynolds on his best day. 
uh, you know, unless you're Ryan yes. Gosling on your best day and you're like, well, like you, know, <laughs> you know, how do, how do we compare, you know, but, um, but, you know, compare, if you, if you, if you find yourself, one of the ways of dealing with this kind of ideation, or if I'm using that word correctly is like, you know, it's okay. No, don't, don't worry. It's okay to compare yourself to other people, uh, but compared to other people in your same context. And, and, and there is there, there, I, I well love that what you brought up earlier is like, there's an element of kind of ambition, to this, right? It's, it's, it's not a sort of like, um, lack of, uh, self-esteem, uh, no. that, 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 that brings you into this mindset. Um, it's self-esteem and wanting to be better and wanting to be wanting, wanting to be that way, but sort of being careful of, of not picking a target that's kind of completely out of your reach. Now it might, it might be within your reach someday, but if you're going to be thinking this way, if you're going to go into that, that loop, you know, bring in something that's sort of nearer to you. And that can be a, a way of sort of, you know, turning it into something more productive rather than destructive. Yeah. That the, the, uh, using mirror is a really cool way of putting it. I like that because also, and not so many words gives you the idea that the mirror has to be quite close. These comparisons are social ones. They are, local comparisons they're not global again linking to your audience it's not like you know the ideal situation might be to to all of the data of all possible comparisons in a searchable database but you know our human existence is not like that these social comparisons it's not just that they happen it's that you know these are the most energy efficient ways for humans to go about figuring out you know where is my place relative to others in this tribe that I either know well or don't know well. What? How? How does my? It's not just about skill. Actually, the the same sort of social uh, comparison type phenomena are about figuring out where your opinion sits in the crowd as well. So you can go down a whole other rabbit hole about groupthink versus thinking on individual terms. But it's all about those close comparisons, having the mirror close to be able to see those reflections because it's the easiest way to figure out where you're at now and where you can be later. What I try to eventually argue is that these things are unavoidable, they're part of the human condition, but consider the game of comparison where it's comparing yourself today versus yourself yesterday or yourself today versus where you want to be tomorrow. You know, those are two different people. It's just a slightly more abstract sort of comparison. But that's really the only game that I realised that you can win, and I think others have echoed that sentiment. You know, it took me a long time to think that way, because back at the beginning of that story, when you asked about it in those postdoc days, I, I had no that penny had not dropped. I had no way to think in those terms. It was just this all-consuming in the moment comparison between me now and others who I later realised were just a few steps ahead of me. And in a productive way, there were a few steps ahead of me. Yeah, comparing yourself to yourself is a lot more productive uh, than comparing yourself to other people. Um, it seems um, is is a very important lesson to to, to try and learn. Um, it um, for some reason that reminds me of this um, great story. I think it was Umberto Eco, the uh, novelist, who had a, a an amazing library, like thirty thousand books, a private library, thirty thousand books, or something like that, and um, he would let people in. Uh, from the, the the public, as it were, he would let them in. Uh -huh. And at one point, uh, he let he, there's this couple, I, I think, that came in, and and one of them looked around and frowned and said, 
you couldn't possibly have read all of these books. And I love that story because clearly in that person's mind, this person only had these books in order to display their accomplishments. Yeah, um, yeah to signal. And, 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 and in particular to, to, to them, right? That this, <laughs> this person is signaling to me and I'm going to, I have to fight back against that in some way to say, no, no, you couldn't have possibly read all these books. And this, the, the, the way you can be, you could basically be captured by the, you know, it's not just like one way. It's like the, you, you looking at that person, looking back at you and then you looking back at them and the, the weird ways you can get caught up in these kinds of things. And it's, instead of thinking like, wow, I wish I, you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to read all these books or something like yeah. that. You know, I haven't read any of them, but one day maybe I can instead sort of bogging yourself down in preoccupations about the other person. Um, it can be, can be very natural, but you know, and very hard to get out of, but if you can find your way out of that <laughs> into yeah. a world where, you know, and, and it's not, it's not that other people are indifferent to you and that they don't have opinions about you or, or, or anything like that at all, but that, you know, you can, it's often you, you're, you're putting yourself in that other person's eyes, looking back at you. That's, that's the mistake that you can make. It's not actually that other person looking at you. It's you inhabiting them with some preoccupation, looking back at yourself. Um, Completely. And I, I wish I had it next to me listening to you. I've, I've, I've picked the wrong day to take my egg timer that used to be sitting on my desk into the office because <laughs> I've been using it to have this same conversation with my students where, you know, in your story, you know, the person who was in some ways angry about the size of the library, you know, they've turned the egg timer upside down and there's all that sand hmm. drifting away on time that they're spending worrying about that other person but the other person on that side of the story isn't letting that their sand dwindle away in reverse you know they're not wasting their time having these thoughts or these you know throwaway comparisons that aren't in any way productive but are doing everything to drain you of the only resource that really matters which is your time i find like just you know having something like that on my desk is a very quick way to help people see, well, how much time are you actually letting drift away? Oh, I haven't heard of that tactic. That's super fascinating. I mean, and that would apply to anything, right? Like any kind of like bad, bad thought paths that you find yourself going down. It's like, exactly. where's the sand falling? Turn your mind away from that, that back towards where you you were supposed to be or where, where you wanted Indeed. to be. That's, that's super interesting. Um, the, um, just before we go on to talk about your, you know, your, your sort of writing process and your publishing uh -huh. process and stuff like that, which is super interesting. There's, there is something I want, I wanted to really talk about this, um, this idea of syndrome, uh, versus phenomenon and even the word imposter. Um, I know you've, okay. done, you've, you've done, you've done research you've done a lot of research into this and you're not, you're not, you know, you're not a psychologist or anything like that, but you are a scientist. Um, and this is just a kind of personal hobby horse I have, but like, I find and I'm just curious what your thoughts are, or, or if there is a discourse around this in psychology, but you know, the, the misuse of the English language by psychologists, I find just incredibly frustrating and damaging. Um, and whenever I encounter sort of things from psychology, I often feel like I'm living in the age of phrenology and I'm, you know, the one of those people jumping up and down saying, I don't need to have, sort of domain specific expertise to tell you that what you're doing is unscientific and wrong. Um, yes. So for example, appropriating everyday English language words to refer to constructs 
um, mm. within their own discipline is incredibly damaging and misleading. So for, I mean, it's sort of, to, to me, the sort of like, you know, iconic example of this kind of profound unscientific mistake is using the word depression. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, like if you look behind it, actually you won't just be like, eventually you if they're real if they're actually rigorous you'll find a paper somewhere or a manual uh you know famously with a description of what that means and what it actually yeah. means is okay if you're trained in these circumstances observing a person in these ways and they exhibit these behaviors in response to these stimuli then we get to say they've got this condition or syndrome uh yeah. uh but None of that is in the dictionary. If you look up the word depression, none of that is in your, 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 your everyday common sense experience of have, using that word or thinking about it or having those experiences and what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, my, my, my sort of, if, if I, if I had, if I were on the sort of soapbox in the, in the, in the corner of Hyde Park or whatever, like they used to do sort of, you know, giving with you know, my crazy speech, it would be like, instead of using these ordinary words like imposter or depression or what, and certainly the nonsense language about laboratory and experiment when you're not doing chemistry, you're like putting a marshmallow in front of a kid. That's not a lab and that's not an experiment. Um, uh, and it's misleading to use those words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But instead, if you just said, you know, kind of observable condition XY9-8, like they do in cosmology, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, then you go, oh, what's that? There'd be no loaded language. There'd be no loaded, you know, preconception. You'd just look it up and you'd be like, oh, if a psychologist under these circumstances observes a person behaving in, in response to certain stimuli in this way, then we've got this sort of pattern that we've defined. Anyway, that's just my little my little rant. Like, you know, is 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 there a discourse around this in psychology that you've come across in your research and stuff like that, or is it really just I'm, to to be to put all my cards on the table? That fucking naive uh, that that people just use these English language words like friendship, uh, you know, uh, you know, empathy uh, okay. to talk about yeah. these. Actually, when you look drill down to it, very specific kind of constructs, but using this like nonsense use of language that 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 they do as a, I hesitate to call it a profession. Well, I'm, I'm loving this firstly because this is really the first time I've had a chance to talk about this with someone who has genuine literary prowess far beyond my own, given your own qualifications. But we cycle back. So what you're, what you're anchoring this on is that, yes, we spoke about, you know, I'd written about syndrome versus phenomenon, and that is my own personal soapbox. But far more subtly in a different chapter of the book, I wrote about the word imposter and use that to think, to try and teach people stories about what it means to be a genuine imposter mm -hmm. and whether or not you really want to be using a word like that to, you know, to paint yourself in the same terms of those who have been convicted in genuine terms of fraud or being an imposter or being part of a Ponzi scheme. I've seen in short, much of this, when I was listening to you, one of the principal things that comes to mind, just to give you one example, is not necessarily from a psychologist, but uh, a revered writer that I learned from when I was trying to figure out how to just articulate this stuff. Um, writer called John McPhee. Bear with me. I. Let's see. You couldn't possibly have read all those books, Mark. 
<laughs> all too often. I won't scramble <laughs> any longer, but there, there is there's a copy of a, a John McPhee book um, on the shelves next to me called Draft Number Four. Mm. And to come to your point, so John McPhee wrote in that book that as a writer, your friend is not the thesaurus, but the dictionary. If you're looking for ways to describe a word, don't look for the other words that are like it in the thesaurus. Don't right-click and go to synonyms. Look at the dictionary definition. Use more words rather than fewer and actually explain the word in simpler terms. But to your point, if you do that, you then get to more specific terms of what you actually mean. Again, I, I know this probably sounds like I've done it several times where I'm I'm hopelessly trying to link this to those in the software space, but I do think about this in those terms when writing programs where you, know, you can easily draw in a whole library of code that someone else has written and using various objects, apply that other code to your own. And there's ways to do that where you never have to look inside the black box of that library that you've brought into your code. And therefore, you might not actually know what's going on. You might think you know what's going on. So you're, as you're saying, you might think you know what the word means, but really what you're doing is using it as a contraction for a whole host of other if this, then that things that lie underneath it. So I think it's, it's yes, it's something I've come across and it's the one case, be it for imposter or syndrome or, like you say, empathy, depression. You know, these are the things where I think there is a genuine case to be made for holding on to the jargon, to be pedantic about it, because um, as well, I imagine, you know, in a position of leadership, that is your responsibility, you know, to not let those in your care hold these assumptions they might do damage to themselves and then concurrently do damage to how your team is trying to run. You know, they, these are the cases where you should and not apologize for being pedantic because in that extra time spent to see what's in the black box, to see what the real de definition of the word is, you then get the message as it was intended and don't leave on the table the risk of misinterpretation of what's been said. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I completely, I, I, yeah, I completely agree with everything you just said. And actually, the comparison to to software is is very apt. Um, I think um, uh, naming is notoriously difficult thing to do in programming and important. Um, and um, these these matters of these matters of 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 naming are in, are incredibly important, especially when you're working across working together with people who have different expertise, right? And so, um, okay, yes, uh, so yes. for for example, a version of this is like. The programmers and the business people uh, and the people in between them all need to have the same language, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to talk about things that they all understand differently, right, from a different perspective. And this is like one of the big challenges um, yeah, uh, that, yeah. that you could that you can have in, in sort of like so. So, for example, the, the sort of programmers will want to talk in the very specific terms. Um, uh, uh, you know that 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 they all understand, but when you're in the context of talking to the person who's going to have to talk to the guy who's like, "What about revenue?" Um, yeah, you know, you yeah. it, and it's it's not dumbing it. The, the important, I think, the thing is that when you, it's not dumbing it down um, to sort of try and find a shared language. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, as you're saying, you can't. You know, there's a there's a great old Simpsons joke. Um, 
where uh, I think his name is Dr. Hibbert. Homer has a heart condition and he needs heart surgery. And Dr. Hibbert is explaining heart surgery to him. And he, and he, he gets all kind of like the person in the library that in, in Umberto Eco's library that I was describing before. It's like, Oh, all up on your high horse with your fancy talk. And, and Hibbert, you know, sort of dumbs it down until he, the point where he goes, I'm going to tinker with your ticker. And that finally Homer <laughs> is happy with that, that description, because now Dr. Hibbert isn't being Mr. Fancy man. But of course, actually Dr. Hibbert couldn't have done Homer a greater disservice than to give him these nonsense words that, that Homer is finally sort of not, um, uh, doesn't feel insulted by right so you do you do have to find a happy medium but very but i mean one of the reasons i think your comparison to you know to software you know there, there actually is something underneath it that's explicit that this term yes. refers to yes um uh and it's the same thing in psychology and sort of using using a sort of and the, the, the sort of you know point that i'm making is that like you know to take a a, a dictionary word right and then use it to apply to something that when someone looks it up in the dictionary it's not there you know that's actually just fundamentally a bad a bad practice uh and and you know so words like for example words like imposter like why should why should you right you know having had the you know the experience that you've had in life and all the hundreds of people that you've interacted with in your research and stuff like that uh why should you have to go through the exercises of explaining well we all know what a real imposter is uh <laughs> You know, it, 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 if, if, if just some sort of very specific kind of form of naming was used instead of appropriating these words from our everyday experience, then just talking about sort of psychological phenomena would be a lot easier and a lot less wrought. Um, yeah, and I think there and that what seems like it should be obvious is then where the magic is because once you get once you swallow the bitter pill and realize that these things are not as obvious as some of us think they should be, then you can turn them into tools to make them more obvious for more people. Um, because if if not doing that, you know, if, we're, if we are our own devil's advocate here, then you could stay on the soapbox and then do nothing about it other than point fingers. Yeah, I think that's, that is your position of leadership, right? Is then to think, well, it's not the way I think it should be, not the way I necessarily want it to be. How do I change that? You know, being the action-oriented person, that's how you then create the tools to say, right, here is what's under the hood. Here is a guided way to look at what's under the hood. And that, maybe circling back to the MBA for a second, that's where I learned about what coaching means versus mentorship. It's like as a leader, you can then create these tools but not necessarily give people the answer lead them up to the point where their revelation becomes their own the penny drops for them you don't drop it on their behalf you know and when people have that self-realization they've learned it for themselves that's when it sticks so that's you know the whole thing that came out of this for me is to get off of that soapbox and say right well here's a tool here's how you can lead yourself up to a point now you need to do the hard work, you need to do the rest, you need to go the last 10%, journal it for yourself, write it out for yourself, teach it onto other people. And then that's when the learning becomes something longer term. And yeah, so to just that's actually given me a, a great uh, uh, segue into the last part of the interview where we talk about your book and how it how it came about and actually doing something. Uh, I can't hesitate, but I, I sort of... um 
can't help myself but make a joke about are you saying that ranting on a podcast means i haven't solved the problem that i care about um uh, uh, but, um You've, you've seen the dissolution problem has started to be solved. Awareness uh, is the first thing. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so you've written this great book. Um, and uh, so I was just wondering if you could talk about the origin story of of, of the book uh, and uh, how you came to write it and um, uh, the process of writing it a little bit and uh, how you came to sort of uh, choose LeanPub as a platform for getting it out there. Trying to avoid um, giving people a nosebleed with me repeating myself I think well, I'd, I'd love to spend more time actually on the how side of it because a lot of the, the, the origins of how it came to be was um, it would be very easy for me to say that this was, you know, this was me trying to preach and convert others to think in this way. It started, as I've told you in earlier parts of the story, this was my itch to scratch for myself. And it was then only in later bits of my career I realised how many people felt this way and that me writing this book to myself could then be as if I was having a conversation with someone across the table. So, you know, that that is essentially why. That's the why behind it. The how it came to be, just before we get to the lean pub, but the how it came to be was really a conversation with a friend of mine who I'd done my PhD with and met a few years after. And I confided in him to say, look, I've, I'm in this new position. I've been writing all of this stuff to myself for a few years. And he seeded the thought of, well, could those thoughts start to cluster into themes and could you call those themes chapters and start to think about turning it into a book? It was That was the seed planted. It was then several years down the line, linking back into thoughts of trying to learn programming where I thought, well, yes, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counsellor or anything like that, but you know, I know how to crunch numbers. I know how to collect data. From other bits of my work, I have been exposed to a lot of psychology and have friends who are psychologists who could peer review the way I want to do this. Let's go beyond the memoir sort of stuff and try to turn it into a research piece where any of the advice that or recommendations I give have more underpinning. And that led to a whole lot of stuff. Programming was one part of it. I would never have planned to, but did eventually hire a genealogist to help me with part of the book, you know, different ways to draw this data in. So the the why was all the stuff we spoke about earlier in my personal side. The how was seeded by the friend who said, your writing could be a book. The start of the mechanics of the how was then figuring out all those research tools that could come together. But how LeanPub came into the picture was one of the happiest accidents of the whole thing. There was, um, I'm now ashamed to say, no design behind it. I actually had no awareness of the platform before the old MBA. Um, so I, I, that's another happy accident that you've brought that up because it was actually someone who I was on the old MBA with, who is a software engineer. His name is Mika. And I still say to him to this day that I, I thank him for ever mentioning the word lean pub in passing. So during the old MBA, I had committed, like, you know, this is me. I need to pull the thumb out my ass. I've had this book on the table for years. I want to get it over the line this year. But I'm still figuring out where to write it. Where do I take all this Word document stuff and actually start to be able to not just format it, but find a platform in which I can start to more formally write what is chapter one and two and three. And he mentioned LeanPub and passing. 
which is when I, I then went to to look at it. My only exposure to anything like it in the past, and I hope this isn't too far down the lines of blasphemy, but was things like latex and overleaf. You know, as an academic, I'd been exposed to those things and, and saw a little bit of the light where, you know, those platforms can help you focus more on the writing and not not too much on whether you're picking a particular font or having a particular type of line spacing. You know, that was my first exposure to see all of that stuff can come later. Get all of that out of your head and find a way to focus on the writing and allow the the magic of some of the automation to happen later where you can then choose whether it's a, a book that's six by nine or a technical book versus a non-fiction book. That's what that mention of Lean Pub in passing allowed me to do. I saw, uh, you know, other platforms that might do the same sort of thing. But when I found Lean Pub, I felt, I should say for people listening, I've not been paid to say any of this. Right? <laughs> this is just my, I'm so glad that that accident happened because I don't even know if I would have published yet had I not found that as quickly as I did. I've found that writing in, in Lean Pub has got me to the point of, you know, I've, I've, it's been no accident that I've got it on the desk, right? But to have versions of the book like this that look the part, that look professional, I thought that was going to be another massive hill of undertaking. I didn't realise until Lean Pub how much of that could be automated. And, and not just automated, but changeable and um, you know, within a few drop-down menus changed to create experiments of what the book might like look like in another form. For example, with the book, the you know, the, I, I held up the hardback version of it there, but the hardback and the paperback are like standard US trade 6x9, right? So that was easy enough to set up in Lean Pub. Where I really started to see more of the magic happen was then with my book editor, she really helped drive me to take what was throw away take home messages at the end of the chapters and turn them into the tools and the challenges that um, I'm now using um, as front runners for talking about the book elsewhere. You know, these are the journaling challenges or the research that others can be prompted to do between chapters before they read on. Because of that, from my editor, I then wrote a supplement the book which is all of those exercises compiled into a workbook a personal journal to accompany the main reading and I had to write that as like an A4 book so it was taking elements of the book as I'd written it and then figuring out which parts of it could I strip out and pivot into this larger template I thought again that was going to be another couple of years worth of a project to get that to happen but the, the book the workbook and uh, more recently yes yes the spanish version of the book i did it all in lean pub it was you know that for the translation it was hiring a translator of course but having that underpinning in lean pub has made each next step easier than the last and i bring it all back to this thing of being able to focus more on the writing and let the magic of what a book looks like come later because i've now I don't know when this will be. I'm not ready to even say where it is, but I've started writing my next book and I've done so in Lean Pub. And that's that's why I, I think I'll now stick with it is because I can see that for anyone here who's an aspiring writer, 
figuring out the workflow is arguably more difficult than any of the writing you'll ever do. I now realize that the writing, as hard as it was, was the easy bit. Figuring out the workflow such that book one be can become book two and book three, that was tough. Ditto marketing the thing. You know, writing becomes a smaller and smaller part of the writer's journey, I dare say. But yeah, um, I'm glad to say that I've found Lean Pub and happier to say that I'll be sticking with it. Thanks very much for sharing all of that. Um, it's uh, we were, before we started recording. One thing I mentioned to to Mark was that um, there are people who actually like we sort of typically do three parts to the uh, to the interviews. You know, the first part is getting to know the person. There are people who love listening to that. The second part is talking about whatever the book. And there are people who love listening to that because that makes it a totally general interest. Both of those parts make it a totally general interest podcast. But there are people who are like, screw all that. I want to learn how to how like you know this person's experience as an author and how they write and their and when you brought up process there that's I mean so so important um and I mean there's a lot that there's a lot that I could say in response to what you said so well but um that that particular uh, point that you're making about um when you're in the writing phase you should our advice is always to sort of try and stay as much in the writing phase as you can uh, without mm. getting worried about formatting. And sometimes people take that to mean that we don't care about formatting. And it's like we do when you're formatting. Uh, and, and the, exactly. reason, the yeah. reason we're so passionate about it is probably it's the same thing, the same reason that that sort of, you know, focusing on the writing was actually something you had to kind of decide to do is because when mm. we're when we're perfectionists, we're like, oh, how's it going to look? How's it going to look? How's it going to look on the page or on the screen or what have you? And it's like, no, no, no. There's a time and a place for being concerned about that. Uh, it might not even be your time or your place at all to ever be concerned about that, right? Which was the, Indeed. In, until desktop publishing came around in the 80s. And this is kind of what I, I could go on about this for a long time, but it's one of the ironies of the kind of a lot of people who think of themselves as bookish now is, uh -huh. is that they in the before the 80s if you were a writer you didn't it was the publisher's job to make the book look nice uh you 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 typed on a typewriter uh you never had any expectation that what you typed would look look anything like what the finished product in the end would be like right you were writing yeah. words sequences of letters and spaces and punctuation um uh uh and and how they would be formatted in the end was something that 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 would be taken care of further on in the process. There was a writing, there was a thinking stage, there's an imagining stage, there's a writing stage, there's a editing stage, there's a you know rewriting stage, and then there's the rewriting stage again and again and again until you get to the end. But but you know finding a process, as you say, that's so important. And and the thing we we sort of like always advocate for is like try and have a like when you're writing to be writing, keep the formatting out of your head. And one of the ways that we try and make that happen with our platform, and we're not alone in this, but is that, you know, we have like, like all, all sorts of options that we, you know, you can try your book theme. You can, you can do that. You can play around with that as do it yes, on a break, do it on a break from your writing and things like that. But trying to take as much of that out of your hands while you're in the writing phase is, is just one of the really important things that we, that we try and do so people can write better books in the end. Uh, absolutely. And, and listening to this and given the fact that you've reminded me about those who will jump straight to this part, I think there's really, for me, there was another important part of this theme that I think is worthwhile sharing for those who, like me, are either thinking about 
their first book might even be already there and thinking about doing it in lean pub i'll give you another genuine point where i wrestled with this for a long time even when i was experimenting with lean pub one of the points for me wrestling with was am i going to self-publish or or am i going to go down the traditional route and before publishing look for an agent who will then pitch it to a a big time publisher and, and get it going down all those traditional routes and balance there are still pros and cons but getting over the line took longer but a lot of the support of content that you at lean pub have put out eventually got me over that line by that i mean this i used to worry a lot about things like piracy and whether or not i could do this on my own whether it was worthwhile and one of the medium posts that um, you've put out that i read that really helped switch my thinking was to realize not if but the fact that all of these things if someone really wants to do it they're going to bloody do it you know if, if someone really wants to steal or pirate what you've got they'll find a way to do it no matter how hard you try those people are not your audience and that that really was a revelation for me and because it then that be, that was such a small part of the bigger picture that to read things in that way helped me then focus on what I really wanted to do, which was I had, I was 90% of the way of saying I did want to self-publish. I had been reading stories of the likes of Hugh Howey, who was one of the first big time self-publishers who's made it like a massive career for himself. But one of the inspirational bits of his story was the fact that learning all of the mechanisms of how to self-publish, not just to be the writer, but to learn how you know platforms like LeanPub could give more of that control to you and that you could have more control of that feedback loop to create new versions of your book and to keep a lot of the decisions for yourself so that you can scale as and when and how you want. Um, and I'm so glad I found that bit that got the worry out of my head because that's really the other side of this that those who fast forward to this bit of the the podcast should hear mechanisms and a platform in the form of lean pub is the way where you can open the black box and see all the steps that you may otherwise assume are too scary and need someone else to do on your behalf that's that's magic that i don't do as the writer i can't possibly see that that needs to be farmed out. I, I can only do this the traditional way. Uh, and that's not the case. So there'll be those listening to this who are at that crossroads and thinking, can I self-publish? That will be the question in their mind. That was the question in my mind. I would say yes. And it's worth the experimental time to see how to do that workflow for yourself. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with traditional publishing. Just saying it depends what you want. I wanted this as my first writing adventure to learn the entire workflow such that if I decide to self-publish again, I can. But if I do decide to go for an agent and a bigger book deal, I now have more of the language so that you know no one can pull the wool over my eyes. And likewise, I can help work more collaboratively with an agent or a publisher because I know now more of what I'm talking about. There's so so much more wealth to this than worrying about, you know, where your book might land or who might try to to do anything naughty with your book, let's say. Thanks very much for that really great uh 
answer. I mean, you know, that's, that's the sort of, you know, um, the sort of best kind of self first book self-publishing story I could imagine someone telling, um, you know, being uncertain, thinking really hard about it, looking down different avenues, a little bit of serendipity, um, trying different things. And I've got to say, it is very gratifying to hear that one or one or two of those articles about not worrying about piracy actually worked with, with someone and changed totally. their mind. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was game changing really sounds like I'm exaggerating, but you know, those are those little things that are the things that can snowball into uh, years of procrastination. Well, and and I mean, it, it is one of the reasons I'm so, I'm so genuinely gratified to hear that is like it is something I, I personally care a lot about. I mean, you know, I remember there's, right. there's, in one of these articles I talk about it, but there was I'm going to call him an asshole who got to write an article in The New York Times a few years ago um, who was sort of defending a professor who was inflating the prices of his books and sort of angry about the students who were pirating them, like they were cheating the wealthy professor of, oh, of yes. money from okay. his overpriced textbooks. And then, and then not surprisingly goes on to talk more asshole talk about, um, uh, you know, um, he has a, he had a, he had a folder in, in his like, I don't know, internet browser called thieves. And he, he would spend his time going around to internet, you know, kind of sites, finding pirated copy of his books and calling it thieves. And it's like, you should be writing more. You should be um, thinking that, that, that's more. That's the egg timer that, coming exactly, I, down again. Right? I just thought of that. Yeah, that great, that great idea of like you know having like, what are you doing, buddy? Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, get on with the next one. Yeah, like you know, I mean, it's just and the reason the reason I get mad about it is because this person had a platform that they could actually use to sort of like draw other people into this nonsense. And it's like if you're if you're a writer, the last thing you should be worried about is as a bad thing is more people reading your books. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, and just, yeah, sorry, just specifically one, one, one example. I mean, you, you showed that, that copy of your translation. I mean, one of the sort of origin stories or of lean pub is, you know, we had, we had an author who discovered that their book had been, that had been uh, translated into Russian um, and uh, by somebody and sold <laughs> by this person uh, without permission. Uh, and instead of getting mad, the author was like, wait a minute, I now have a Russian audience, you know, for, for my book. Um, That's just the, the best uh, kind of optimism, isn't it? Exactly. And so what they did was, I mean, they got in touch, they got in touch with the translator, ostensible pirate and said, Hey, I've got a new book coming out. Would you like to translate it? And let's, you know, write up a contract and stuff like yeah, that. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, and like, you know, for example, in, you know, lean pub used to be bootstrapped. So, but we, we would do client uh, work to sort of fund our dreams on the side and our yes. most lucrative client by far found us by pirating my co-founder's book. Um, he said, I was, I was looking Amazing. for books online. I pirated, I, I got a pirated copy and, you know, wow, I really want to work with you now, you know? Wow. And, and so, you know, the, it, but this is the, to sort of generalize from this, like a lot of the things that we can find ourselves preoccupied with in a kind of very negative way are actually like, it's not, it's not the world putting you in a container. It's you locking yourself into it. Um, totally. and, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you've, you've, um, you've got there before I did, which was like, yeah, you know, that piracy side, there is, it's not just that it can block your time, but you can think that that's the only side of it. I think the other thing positively that I've realized is that, you know, lean pubs are part of this. It's a bigger theme, but in publishing at lean pub, you're then serving a, a different audience again. 
you're you're serving an audience of people um, who prefer to access books in this way, to to read books as a PDF, to have the flexibility of downloading the EPUB and putting it on whatever device they read from, um, uh, to contribute in terms of their monetary donation more flexibly rather than there being a set price. You know this these characteristics then build up an audience which you call uh, lean pub and you know those these are people who could be learning and being served by your message that might not ever buy a book off amazon or from a bookstore you know because there's these are this is a different niche to serve so that was the other thing for me where i thought well you know it's not all about all that other stuff this is a a group of people who might not be elsewhere and one person who sees it and enjoys it might interact with another person who's in this community who can then get enjoyment from it as well. Um, you know, outside of LeanPub, ditto for why it's worthwhile having the ebook, the paperback, the hardback, the audio version. I've done all of those things now because it's not, it's not that everyone's going to buy all of them. It's that each version, each medium is a message for a different audience who will only buy the audiobook, who might only like nice hardbacks, who want paperbacks as far as the eye can see, or who do all their reading on an electronic device. These are all different audiences. And you can think about serving them all. Oh yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And just, I just wanted to qualify one thing there, which is we don't advocate piracy on Leapa. Um, no, <laughs> no, and and, no. and and it's but but I, I brought to say that by what you said about the community and people with different interests and stuff like that. So, in particular, and this is why we save this for the end of the episode because it's all this kind of in the weeds stuff. But because yeah. we pay an eighty percent royalty to authors, and because yes. we let people decide what to pay, we actually show you how much the author is going to get from your purchase on LeanPub, which actually means that we I have like that. extremely low refund rates, uh, I think, uh, compared to the industry. Um, and actually people often pay more than they have to uh, for LeanPub books because there's this connection between them and the author um, that's there yeah. that you don't get in a normal commercial you know, bookstore relationship, right? Where it's like, I have no idea how much the author is going to get. And if I did know, maybe I wouldn't buy that book <laughs> uh, because they get so little typically. Um, uh, but, but anyway, but you know, that that's, that's all to say that like, you know, there's there, as you say, there are the, all these different, one thing to keep in mind is when you go down the self-publishing route or even the publishing route, there's all sorts of people in all sorts of circumstances who are going to come to you in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and one of the main things to keep yes. in mind is anyone who finds their way to your work. Great. Uh, you know, uh, that, that, that's a good result. If it's through the paperback, if it's through the hardback, if it's through, they, they found it on a Airbnb bookshelf, you know what I mean? You know, and didn't, didn't, and, you know, had a great night reading yes. it, yes. you know, uh, and, but didn't pay you a cent, but then they, now they know who you are and they got something from it. They learned, maybe they had this moment where they're like, I've always felt this way. I didn't know what the name for it was, but now I have it. It's imposter phenomenon. Thank you very much. You know, Mark, for you know, sort of taking years out of your life to, to write about this and get this out there. Um, but, uh, with all that said, uh, this is, we've now done a, a feature length kind of interview. Um, and so in the, it's somewhat interests of time. The very last thing that I say for the uh, question to ask on these interviews, if the guest is is a, is a lean pub author is if there was one terrible problem with our platform that you had you shaking your fist at the screen all the time that we could fix for you, or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, 
Um, is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do that you think would help you or, or other authors or readers? I have been selfishly thinking about this for an unusual book format I would like to trial. If I said much more than that, it would give the game away. But I, I want to write a particular book, and it may be my first foray into fiction writing, where one doesn't read the book the way one would suspect to read a book. So to achieve that, I I think there could be more flexibility on on the previews that are generated. Let me put it that way. That has been the single most positive thing so far. Authors thinking about writing one of the game changers for me in Lean Pub was the tightness of the feedback loop. You know, when a bit of writing was done, click the button, generate the preview, see it as a, a beautiful formatted PDF. And for some reason, I always spot errors easier than in a PDF than elsewhere. So that feedback loop was constant and it made iteration easier. But the future projects I'm thinking about doing in Lean Pub, there's parts of that where it would be nice to have a few more cogs in what that preview looked like. I know I'm being probably very unhelpfully mysterious in saying that, um, but maybe to give you a bit more value than just that answer, there's another element of the platform that I haven't explored that in answer to your question, you know, some constructive criticism might be there's other parts of, let's say, the community functions, uh, the forum sorts of functions that an author has for Lean Pub that I think I would benefit on seeing more educational content about up front. Why do I say that? So others, I think certainly in software where you're looking at more activity-based writing, you know, I've said that in my book, I've got a lot of tools and challenges um, on the entrepreneurial side, I've been turning my book into seminars and workshops and going out and doing paid speaking on that side of things. So I'm looking more and more about the book as the starting point and the course as the next iteration of it. And I know that's another whole other conversation for what Lean Pub can do. But as part of that and part of our earlier conversation about community, I know there's this whole other world of using forums and creating more of a community that you can see in LeanPub. I haven't really made use of any of that. And I just wonder, am I the sort of person, you know, like coming across your article on piracy and not focusing on that? You know, if I could see more stuff on that other part of the possible possibilities in a LeanPub workflow, would I make more of it? Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. That's um, that's uh, that's um, the, the the community part is something like you know we've always been sort of so focused on sort of book generation and working with authors and stuff like that. That um, you know, the sort of community side of things. We do have we do have forums that you can create for books. We have forums that we have an authors forum and things like that, uh, which is all based on the platform called Discourse. Um, yes, but there is so much more we could do. And basically, you know, we we actually do. It was a few years. It was way too late that we realized we'd been doing everything over email, mm. and it's like authors were asking us questions directly on email and we'd answer them on email. 
which does not scale uh, and does not help because yes. <laughs> so, yes. so then, then we made a help center, which is, you know, again, like we were, you know, not a, not a, an invention of ours, <laughs> but something we should have been doing for years and actually sharing more, finding ways to share more uh, about all the sort of like inf- information we have and experience that we have is something that we're trying to focus on more uh, going forward. Um, in particular, we might, you know, start sharing more on it. We do it, we do it on, on sort of like social media and stuff like that, but, but mm-hmm. having a dedicated place, like probably our authors forum, um, uh, which you can find a link to on the, in the sort of footer of our homepage, if you're interested, um, anyone listening, yes. uh, uh, posting there probably every day, something, um, would actually probably be very, very helpful to people. I mean, you just ignore it if it's not interesting, but if it is, yeah. click, click into it and see it. And, and it is, it is very easy for us to second guess ourselves and also to, um, just underestimate how useful sort of things that the sort of, you know, that we we sort of deal with every day it might be sort of like news. Well, obviously, will be news to people, uh, you know, who who don't who don't do this all the time, um, yeah. and and so that's actually sort of one one sort of sort of thing we know that we need to do better and when we try to do better. And thanks very much for bringing that up. And and again, you know, for sort of like saying like the sort of you know for us to hear the sort of success story of like you changed my mind and got and got me going on something uh you know can be good motivation from our end as well to sort of you know try and get out there more uh uh but uh mark well thank you very much for taking some time out of your your evening um in glasgow uh to to talk to me and to talk to our audience uh about about you know your story and your book and your experience as an author and thank you very much for choosing lean pub as your platform we really appreciate it it's um, all parts of that are a joy to say the very least and thank you for taking the time as well it's it's not just me that's turned my egg timer upside down for this and and it's been so worthwhile um you know uh, and then tying this to your closing comments i think it's equally endearing to be engaging on a platform where you're asking open questions for feedback like you have it's you know it's, it's a wonderful signal to have that you know you like all your authors are living to learn and trying to make the experience better all the time so it was a happy accident for me but one that i'll i'll be grateful for for a long time i'm looking forward to doing more with the platform thanks again Lynn. thanks very much and as always thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the front matter podcast if you like what you heard please rate and review it wherever you found it and if you'd like to be a lean pub author yourself please check out our website at leanpub.com thanks